If you've not been with us the past several weeks, months, as we've been in Hebrews, we are reading a, a letter that was written to people following Jesus but wavering in their commitment because under heavy persecution, they began to wonder if it was worth it. They began to wonder if the sacrifice they were being called to make could justify what they were having to undergo. They, they were being told that if they just gave up on Jesus, all would be well with them. And many of them did. And the author of Hebrews writes to warn them and to encourage them, to warn them of the danger of giving up, but also to encourage them that what, what they have in Christ, if we hold fast in faith, it is a far greater blessing than anything we could hope to gain otherwise. And then we get to Hebrews chapter 11 where he begins to look back on the history of God's people at how they lived by faith, not yet receiving the good things that we're holding out for, but yet pushing on, moving forward, living faithfully, nevertheless, as we wait for the good things that God has promised. We wrap up chapter 11 today as we look at verses 32 through 40. Hebrews 11, 32 through 40, hear now the word of the Lord. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. I recall, you know, I've seen some things over the years, especially in my time overseas, and I recall one time uh, in a community where I was living, seeing uh, a team of construction workers working on the last of a series of apartment buildings that were being constructed in a row. And they were building up the last of these buildings. And much to my surprise, one morning I noticed as I saw them building up these buildings, I saw another team of construction workers come in and begin tearing down the first in those rows of buildings and working towards those who were just now setting up these buildings. And I asked a friend of mine who knew the area and knew real estate in that area, what is going on? Nobody's even moved into these buildings. They haven't even finished building it, and they're tearing it down. And he explained, well, the, the property's been sold, and it's going to be turned into a mall, but the construction team's not going to get their paycheck if they don't finish the building first. So they've got to finish it before the other team comes in and finishes tearing it down. And I thought, how frustrating. How frustrating for that team of workers to know that what they're laboring on and what they're working on and what they're striving to complete, it's going to be for nothing. It's just going to be torn down right behind them. Who would want to work on that? Who would want to build something with that end in mind? 
And likewise, the people of God at times begin to wonder, is what we're striving for and is what we're working on and what we're committing our, our labor and our effort and our prayer and our energy and our emotions to, is it just going to be wiped out in the end and a waste of time? It's not, spoiler, but it can sure feel that way at times, doesn't it? And the, as the author of Hebrews finishes up this chapter of those who live by faith, he's looking at those who, who had to serve God in faith, not seeing the fruit of what they were doing, not knowing except on the promise of God that it was worthwhile. Now I know what some of you are thinking, Pastor, it's Palm Sunday. I want to see children waving palm branches. I don't want to hear about people being sawn in two. But trust me, it's connected. No pun intended. Um, some of you are just kidding. I didn't mean that. It just kind of came out. Palm Sunday is when we celebrate and remember Jesus entering Jerusalem and being received and welcomed as a king. But how did that end? Was that welcome long-lived? Was he received and accepted by the world that wanted him to be king? He was not. And we have to wonder, how does the world receive and respond to the servants of God? Like the officers that we've just installed and ordained, and like all of us, as we in some ways greater and some ways smaller, work to build up the body of Christ and to, to bring the kingdom of God into being. We see in these verses what it means to serve in faith as we serve God. And so I have some words, as I'm supposed to for an ordination service, I have some words specially meant for the officers, the new officers, but those words are not for them alone because they are representatives of all of us. They are examples who are doing what all of us are called to do and they call us to serve alongside them. So as we serve God, as did the people of God in ages past, we serve by faith, trusting that what He has said is true and what He's called us to build, what He's called us to do in the church is a task worth doing. And we will see that it will be worth it in the end. So the first lesson we learn from those who've gone before is that the servants of God are not worthy of their calling. Verse 32, what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. You know, one of the first books that I preached through uh, six years ago almost now when I came to this church uh, was the book of Judges. And we entitled that series Portraits in Grace because as we looked at these characters, these figures, you know, Ehud, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah and others, we saw that though there are cool stories about them and they do some amazing things, they are not ever to be read as heroes of godliness and righteousness. They are, in most cases, absolute, miserable failures when it comes to faith and when it comes to righteousness. And yet God did not look down and choose the best the most upright, the most faith-filled men and women to use to rescue his people. Instead, he chooses Gideon. Gideon, who doubted God from the very beginning. 
who questioned God again and again and again. Gideon, who was so afraid that he would only obey God under cover of darkness. Gideon, who ended up so prideful after victory that he named his, one of his sons Abimelech, which means my dad is the king. Gideon. God chose Barak. Barak, who didn't believe the word of God as it was given through the prophetess Deborah. And so even though he went forward and won the battle, the glory was given to another, to Joel. God used Samson, who, sure, he was very strong in physical terms, but he was too weak to control his lust, and it became his undoing again and again and again. God used Jephthah, who thought that he needed to bargain with God in order for God to give victory to God's people. He forgot what grace was all about and he forgot the faithfulness of God and therefore ended up bargaining and even sacrificing his daughter's life. No, these were not heroes of godliness and faith. They were failures. Even the others that he mentions in verse 32, David, Samuel, the prophets, they might not be bad as these people from the judges, but they were not perfect either. And the story of David's life, which I was just reading in my own quiet times the past month, David's life seems to show just as much sin and failure as it does victory and obedience. And so we see these unworthy, sinful, faithless, flawed people and what happens through them. Verses 33 through 35. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms. Through faith, they enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Yes, they saw victory, but not because they were the best and brightest and strongest and bravest and most full of faith. The victory that they saw was because God gave it to them. He made them strong. They became mighty. The success they have for the sake of God's kingdom is because God is at work through them, not because they were better than others. The point is that God builds His kingdom and the tools that He uses to build it are men and women who are weak and flawed and imperfect even the officers that we've called up today, the deacons and the elders chosen to serve the church, are not in that position because they are better than anyone else. They are not ordained because they are Christian superstars. No, God uses people who are not strong, not wise, and at times not good. And He does this for a reason. He does it to show His grace and his power. Look how Paul describes it in 1 Timothy 1. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I, Paul, the apostle, author of 12 books of the New Testament, I, Paul, am the foremost of sinners. But I received mercy for this reason. This is, Paul says, This is why God was merciful to me, not just merciful unto salvation, but merciful to use me in his service so that in me as the foremost among sinners Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life 
Paul is able to say, look at me. I was killing Christians. I was dragging them into prison, breaking up their homes, destroying their lives. If God can use me, is there anyone he cannot use? God uses the weak and the unworthy to show his power and to show his grace. Whatever God's servants accomplish, it is because it is God at work. Which is what faith means in this context. The men and women of faith were victorious because they acted in what God had promised to do. Not because they looked inside themselves and believed in themselves and says, well, as long as I am believing in myself, there's nothing I can't do. That's nonsense. You believe the God who promised to do all things. And He who promised to build His church and through His church to bring the salvation of Jesus Christ to the nations, He will do it. And He will do it through imperfect, unworthy servants. And I think that is the most encouraging thing we can see in this passage. That God uses unworthy people to do His work because it means that God can use anyone. 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 Even us. In fact, if God's, it is God's tendency to make use of the least remarkable, the least capable, the least worthy, just to make His point that He is the one at work. And so Paul would also write, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Gee, thanks, Paul. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The kingdom is not built on celebrities who come to faith. The kingdom is not built on superstars and wealthy people and powerful people. The kingdom of God is built on the weak whom God chooses to make strong. So be humble, people of God. Be humble, officers of the church. You are what you are because God said, here's somebody I can use as an example of how I can work through anyone. I stand before you today as one such person. I can tell you stories. So be humble, but also be confident. Paul, in reflecting on his ministry in 2 Corinthians, says, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? Who is worthy of this? Who can handle this? Who is capable of doing these amazing things that God intends to do through his servants? And a few verses later, chapter 3, verse 5, he says, I'll tell you who's sufficient. We are because our sufficiency is from God. Not from our own ability, but from God choosing to work through servants who are unworthy of their calling. The next thing we see in these verses is that the servants of God are not accepted by the world. The servants of God are not accepted by the world. I'm fascinated by the phenomenon of selective memory, that, that we look back on events and moments and experiences in our life and we only remember the good parts. We forget the bad stuff. Already, I, I just took a trip with my family two weeks ago to the Grand Canyon, and already I am only really remembering, except when I choose to, the, the, the views of the Grand Canyon. 
and the amazing things we saw and the smiles on my kids' faces as they played in the snow for the first time in five years and the awe on my daughter's face as we stood like three feet away from an elk that just wandered up to us. Like I'm remembering the beautiful parts. I Already fading from memory is the uh, hours of sitting in the airport lobby and hearing again, oh yes, of course, Spirit Airlines is delayed again. We are now leaving four hours after we were supposed to on this red-eye flight. You know, the cramped seats, the lack of comfort, the, the freezing wet feet, because I didn't bring snowshoes. Selective memory. We remember the good stuff, but we tend to forget the bad stuff. And that's probably good in most cases. But the author of Hebrews is quick to remind us that despite all those victories of faith that he just talked about, the good stuff, the resurrections, the, the armies having victory, the amazing things that are going on, victory wasn't all there was to the stories of those who served God in faith. Beginning in verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's the other side of the story. Because the servants of God are not accepted by the world. How appropriate to consider these verses on Palm Sunday when we remember the welcome that Jesus received from the crowds as they treated him as their king, but not everyone accepted him as king even on that day. And as he entered Jerusalem to the shouts of many, there were others in that crowd who were complaining and who were plotting his eventual execution. And on the day of his arrest and his execution, there were no crowds rising up to stop the plots. Some of the language here in these verses seems to recall Abraham and Sarah wandering about through the world awaiting their true home, as we discussed a few weeks ago. The servants of God are not accepted by the world. They are opposed. They are mistreated. They are unwanted and unwelcome. And the people who follow Jesus should not expect to be accepted by the world because the world did not accept Jesus. He tells us this in John 15, his last night with his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I say this to the church in America that is undergoing an identity crisis because for generations the church has been not just accepted but in positions of power and influence and welcomed in the halls of power and welcomed in our culture and that is not true anymore. And we should not be surprised and we should not act like we're doing something wrong and we certainly should not try to rearrange our house and get things in order so people will once again smile when they hear talk of the church of Jesus. They hated him. They will hate us. They persecuted him. They will persecute us. Now to be clear, the servant of God does not seek to offend. 
We're not trying to make people angry. We're not trying to provoke them. The gospel in itself is a stumbling stone. The message that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And there's no other way to satisfy God and to have eternal life except by trusting in Him. That He rose from the dead and lives forever and has authority and power over all things. That in itself is offensive to all who do not believe. That in itself is a stumbling stone. It offends those who do not receive it with humility and repentance. And so the servant of God, which is all of us, and I speak especially to officers of the church, we ought to ensure that if we are giving offense to another, if we are rejected, if we provoke outrage and even violence, as our brothers and sisters in Tennessee experienced this week, let us be sure that we have spoken softly, gently, and patiently. Let us be sure that we have treated even our enemies with respect, treating them lovingly, treating them sincerely. And let us be sure that any offense or any rejection or any hatred is because of the stumbling stone that is the cross of Jesus Christ. But also, because the servants of God are not accepted by the world, I urge you to prepare yourself for that rejection. Prepare yourself to be rejected by not having your roots and your affections anchored in this world. The sting of rejection, whenever we experience any rejection in life, I'm not just talking about rejection as a Christian, any rejection that we experience, whether it's rejection for a job or a romantic relationship or a child rejecting their parents or any rejection we experience, the sting of that rejection comes from the feeling that we are being denied something that we need and that that other party can give us. Whether it's acceptance, approval, affirmation, affection, security, prosperity. When someone rejects us, it stings because we see them as source of something we need and desire and can only get from them. And if we think that we need the world's approval and praise and acceptance and a thumbs up from our neighbor and it is denied us, we will be undone. If we believe the world has something we need, we will be crushed when the world rejects us and we will do anything to avoid that experience. We can make our hearts ready to be rejected by the world by learning that everything we need and desire Everything you need and desire comes from the hand of God. What words of affirmation can exceed God's well done, good and faithful servant? What security in this life can surpass your heavenly father's embrace? What treasure can match the inheritance that is given the children of God? What title can excel being called a child of God. The world will not accept the servants of God, but the world has nothing to offer the servants of God. To lose the world's favor is to lose nothing. The servants of God, they are not accepted by the world and they are not worthy of their calling. Lastly, we see they are not finished in this life. The servants of God are not finished in this life. On some level, 
Every conflict, every struggle, every story that we read in Scripture is part of one bigger story about the victory of God's kingdom. We see the end of a chapter of a story, but we do not yet see the end of the whole story. Sin has entered God's good creation, and we cannot be at rest. We have no peace until sin is rooted out and removed from His creation. Only then is God's purpose fulfilled. Only then is His promise made true. Only then is the story complete. The attempt to build and defend the physical kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament the call to true and faithful worship through the temple and through the prophets, the invitation to follow Jesus and to be a part of the early church, they are all a part of one and the same story of God reclaiming the world He has created, which has been violated by sin. And so all these stories that came before us, the successes and the failures, the heroes and the martyrs, they show us that the servants of God are not yet finished in this life. No matter what they or we accomplish, and even when they taste the beginnings of fulfillment, when they arrive in Canaan, the promised land, when they see the walls of Jericho come down, when they see the mighty temple of Solomon, when they see the great revival under Josiah, when they see John the Baptist declaring repentance, when they see the empty grave, they have a taste of the glorious end of the story that is yet ahead of us. Verse 39, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. On Palm Sunday, the crowds expected an earthly king, one who would put down their enemies and bring peace. That's exactly, exactly what Christ intended to do, but not in the way that they thought. A few days later, as he stood before Pilate at his arrest, he said these words in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. But my kingdom is not of this world. And though in Jesus we have seen God advance the battle up to the enemy's doorstep and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Though victory is now guaranteed and captives are being reclaimed, it is true that we cannot expect to accomplish through our own labor what will only happen when Christ returns. In verse 40, God had provided something better for us. Apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That word perfect, we've talked about before. It doesn't mean flawless. It means complete, mature. Finally reaching the point that you were made to be at. I could have a beautiful mango on my tree, and I'm going to have hundreds of them soon. Some of you are already waiting and asking me about them. I could have a beautiful mango that is just not right. It's not mature. It's not where it's supposed to be yet. Is it flawed? Is it full of holes and worms? No, it's not. But it's not perfect yet because it's not where it's getting to be. It's not where it's supposed to be. And Carl will tell me. Carl Taunus will tell me when it's where it needs to be. Now you can pluck that mango, Rob. And not a moment sooner. And that's what the people of God are undergoing. They're experiencing joy and trouble. They're experiencing victory and failure. And God is saying, but we're not at the end yet. They're not perfect yet. Only together with us will they be made perfect. God didn't intend for the time of Gideon or David or Hezekiah or even the disciples to be the final stage in his plan. 
nor is our experience in the church and in the world today the goal and end of it all. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Brothers and sisters, if this is it, and, and I enjoy our times together, and I am going to enjoy our meal together, and I enjoy talking with you all, and I enjoy the, the friendships and the fellowship that we have and we share, but if this is it, if this is all we're here for, we're wasting our time, and we are pathetic. We are to be pitied. No, God has prepared something better, and only together with all the saints, past, present, and future, will we receive it and experience it. The servants of God are not finished in this life. And I thank God for that. There will always be work to do. Listen in, officers, and all of you. There will always be sin in the congregation. There will always be hurting and needy people who need our support. There will always be conflict, even among the most faithful. There will always be more work to do until the day when God makes all things new. We labor, but not in vain, not expecting to run out of work at any point. We serve by faith, trusting that as we continue this work that never ends until Christ returns, that what we invest in and what we build, what we work for, will in the end be glorious. I can't tell you, when I chat with other pastors, other elders, leaders of other churches, the shared frustration of how it never ends. You finish one crisis, there's another one that's been brewing all along. You, 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 hurdle, you cross one hurdle, there's a hundred more ahead of you. The feeling that the work never ends, and I don't want us to get caught up in thinking, if we could just fix this, that, and the other. You know, we got the slides working consistently. Hallelujah. Now, if we can just get like this, this, and this done, everything will be great. And I tell you, it will not. Because it's not just that. It's every broken heart that sits here. It's every crisis that's happening in this room right now that we don't even know about yet because you haven't reached the point where you know you need to bring it to your brothers and sisters. It's everything that's just on the cusp of coming. The work doesn't end. We're not finished in this life. So don't come to the church expecting a place where everybody gets along, nobody is sinful, everything is happy, and everything works the way it's supposed to because the work will never end until, until that day. So to all of us, especially the officers, but to all of us, I say work hard. Labor faithfully, do good things, rejoice in the results that you do see, but do not expect that you or anyone else will ever finish the work of leading God's people to rest because that day awaits the return of Christ. When, we will, when He will again enter the city as He did so long ago, He will enter the city to shouts of triumph. But instead of heading towards a cross, he will take his place on his throne. And it will be true, as Philippians 2 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the day we're waiting for. That's when the work is done. And until that day, we serve by faith. Let me close with this story, one quick parable that Jesus told. Because I've talked a lot about us being servants. 
But our story doesn't end with us as servants. Did you know that? We serve until the feast. Jesus tells a parable about this to encourage us not to give up the hard work of the kingdom. Hard work that includes simply being faithful and not giving up. But also the work of serving one another, loving our neighbors, living rightly. Listen to this parable. I love it. Luke 12. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So he's talking about servants who have been faithfully keeping the house in order, waiting for the master to return. They don't know when he's going to come back. He said, make sure that you're ready when he comes back and keep being faithful until he comes back. And look what happens. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake, ready, serving, faithful when he comes. Truly, I say to you, here's what that master is going to do. He's going to dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them what a king this is a picture of the grace of god to us in jesus christ the reward that we experience the feast that awaits us is not something we have worked to prepare he has gone to prepare it for us just like our brother chris and his friends are out there preparing for you a feast to enjoy your savior is doing the same thing He is preparing for you the reward that you did not earn. It's all his work, his labor, and you will recline at the table and enjoy it. While we do the work of the kingdom, there is another who has done the work of preparing our reward. Brothers and sisters, serving by faith is not just a matter of being totally selfless and not caring about what happens to you. Serving by faith means you serve in joy. Because you know the character of the one that you serve. And you know that one day he will reward his people. So prepare your hearts and your appetites. For those that don't know it, the food's being cooked right outside this window here. So that's why I keep pointing this way. Prepare your hearts and your appetites because serving by faith ends with the feast that God has prepared for all of his people. And it will be worth it in the end. Pray with me, and I'll bless the food as I do. Heavenly Father, thank you for... Thank you for our great King, Jesus Christ, who entered the city to give Himself so that on another day, He would return to shouts of triumph. We thank you for this week as we remember especially the sacrifice of Christ and what that means for us. Would you bless our time of fellowship today? The food to strengthen us, the conversation to encourage us, the fellowship to strengthen us and make us bold. We need one another. May your Spirit work among us today. May we encourage one another in these things to serve by faith, we who are not worthy of this calling, we who will not be accepted by this world and never be finished in this life. We rejoice in and work for the day when we will rest around the wedding banquet of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.